0: Time and place and so I I want to thank you for inviting me on today to talk about some of the events and projects that are going on with the public defenders office
1: Yeah, very much looking forward to that and I thought perhaps we could also just talk about what the uh, public information officer what are you responsible for
0: Well, I am the Liaison for press Mm. And so I uh, work on press releases and press statements and I I I speak with reporters and um, and do a lot of the external communications mm-hmm. for our office, um, but I also do a lot of the internal communications as well. So I, I you know keep track of who in our office has been quoted in the press uh, any given day or week. So I'm you know sending out weekly uh, news roundups to the whole department, um, which is I think a really interesting thing that's. Uh, you know, I've been doing building up, too, and, and I do it, um, you know, regularly at this point in time. Uh, the pandemic has been an interesting shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, any way that we can all, you know, stay connected uh, is really important. And so um, I really enjoy being able to um, keep people connected within the department, even though we're not all in the building anymore. Got it. Um and then, uh, yeah, and and then also working on a few other really interesting creative projects that we're gonna talk about today that I'm excited about.
1: Great, well, please um, go ahead. We can start off with
0: the, the upcoming event um, at the Tenderloin Museum and then go from there. Cool, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm glad you reached out to me about this event. Mm-hmm. Um, so on J- June 2nd at the Tenderloin Museum, um, there's gonna be an event that features the um, Well, kind of the life and times, but also a specific book that was written by the late public defender Jeff Dotti, um, who was public defender for 22 years. Uh, Mm. San Francisco still is the only uh, county in in California that has an elected public defender. Mm. Um, So uh, he's you know widely regarded and respected not only as a as an amazing attorney but also as um, a filmmaker and a writer. Um, Mm. So he was a bit of a Renaissance man. um, And so he had written a a book um, prior to his passing about the first public defender of San Francisco, whose name was Frank Egan. Mm -hmm. Um, Incidentally, this year is the 100th anniversary of the San Francisco public defender's office. Mm. And so Frank Egan became public defender of San Francisco in 1921 um, he was a former police officer, um, and he was kind of a, a, a man about town. Um, and then he ended up being uh, tried for murder, <clears throat> excuse me, murder and conspiracy.
1: Oh, wow.
0: For the death of, of a, a woman in San Francisco. And so uh, the book that Jeff Adachi wrote is, is the, the Case of Frank Egan, mm-hmm. Murder and Scandal in the 1930s. Mm. And uh, so that book is going to be featured as part of the conversation at the Tenderland Museum on June 2nd. Oh, wow. Uh, it's, it's really interesting to me. I've read the book and we, we had our own panel that you can find on our YouTube channel. Mm. But, um, and, and at this particular discussion on, uh, coming up at the Tenderland Museum, uh, it'll be a, a panel discussion with Matt Gonzalez, who's the chief attorney in our office um, and, uh, you know, kind of our, our resident historian, if you will, um, along with Shaquille Wilson, who's a longtime um, managing attorney in our office, um, both of whom worked very, very closely with Jeff Dacci. Um, and uh, it's, it, the, the book itself is a really great read.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he's writing it, you know, I mean, he's a defense attorney, but uh, there, there was no actual court transcript of Frank Egan's trial, hmm. that, that so not, not, none known in existence. Um, but at the time, there were so many different newspapers in San Francisco that there was a throng mm. of reporters in court every single day kind of fighting to get the, the day's headline. Um, and so he literally had to go back and piece together the history um, from the headlines and from these articles. It, I mean, it's been written about in, in some other um, respects as well. David Talbot wrote about it in Season of the Witch, mm-hmm. um, most notably and recently. Um, but the way that Jeff Adachi tells it, it, it becomes this, this gripping read um, as the investigation unfolds and, and the theatrics of the courtroom. Um, so it's, uh, it's it was pretty interesting um, that it, it happened to be Um, published posthumously um, in this uh, centennial year for the office. Yeah, I thought something you mentioned early on I was just curious about was that why is San
1: Francisco the only uh, city in California with an elected public defender?
0: That is a really great question. Now, I don't know why we elect one and other counties do not. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know the history behind that, but there is a lot of conversation out there about well, why do all district attorneys get elected? Why mm-hmm. do all sheriffs get elected? And mm-hmm. yet, um, most public defenders are appointed. Right. So they, and in you know, politically speaking, um, it, it's a more um, precarious position to be in if you're an appointed position. So you might be appointed by a mayor or a, or a city council, um, and then you know, so, therefore, some of the decisions that you're making. Um, are, are going to get that sort of um, scrutiny mm-hmm. if you're doing things that people don't like. Um, but as uh, as an elected public defender, uh, Mano Raju is our elected public defender now, mm-hmm. um, and he's been in the office for a dozen years um, already and uh, was kind of the natural pick um, to, to to follow Jeff Fidaci. Um, but it does give our city, um, our public defender, uh, a position of, um, you know, just a, being able to answer to the public and having a little bit more independence. Um, you know, we have a policy unit, so we push for a lot of different local and statewide legislation, um, and, and we, and you know, therefore gives him, you know, a little more leverage um, in in pushing for some of the changes that uh, we want to see to the criminal legal system. Mm. That's, I, I didn't know any of that, so thank you for sharing that information. I have learned so much <laughs> since I've been here. Uh, I feel like I accidentally, um, you know, jumped into law school. Mm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's really quite the journey, um, and it's really inspiring as well.
1: I bet. I bet. And yes, this upcoming event sounds really interesting, as well as the book. I was looking at the... Uh, Link from the Tenderloin Museum that they sent, so it looks looks very fascinating.
0: Yeah, and they've shown some of his films in the past, and um, mm-hmm. and actually they're going to show one of his uh, documentary shorts that evening as well. Um, mm-hmm. And and to kind of tie in uh, to both filmmaking and the Tenderloin, and um, we have a new program, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, an art media initiative. Um, that, that our office has started called the Adachi Project, oh, um, cool. and it's inspired by Jeff, and, you know, and obviously named after him mm-hmm. um, because he really wanted to use film, documentary film, to, um, you know, to to broaden um, the lens and and let public see kind of the ins and outs of, of the system that we don't often see. And so the Adachi project that we've started just in the past, um, we've just been working on it for the past year or so, and we've finally got our final approval, <clears throat> excuse me, by the city <clears throat> uh, back in December. Um, and, and, that, and, that's, and that's part of our goal there, which is we want to illuminate these unseen perspectives and amplify these unheard voices uh, mm-hmm. of people who are impacted the most by the criminal legal system. Yeah, uh, those who are caught up in it for one one reason or another, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, we've we've put out three films so far, and um, the first one that we released actually is about um, a halfway house in the Tenderloin. Mm. Uh, the address of it is 111 Taylor Street. Yeah. So the, the name yeah. of the film is 111 Taylor during a pandemic. So it happened to be. Um, you know, we were kind of interested in in highlighting um, the the ins and outs of of what it means for people who are living, um, you know, are on parole. And it happened to be that the pandemic hit,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and um, we had a couple of clients who were living at One Eleven Taylor, which is owned and operated by GEO Group, the multi billion oh. dollar private prison industry uh, corporation, <sighs> rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so Geo Group runs 111 Taylor, and um, our clients who are living there were saying that, you know, this is scary. We don't know what's going on. Right. Um, and we have that kind of unique relationship with with these folks because we, the rural we here, are their public defenders, and they, they trust their public defender um, right. probably more than anybody else in the entire system. Uh, and so um, we ended up getting a camera to, to um, one of these people – uh, who began recording what was going on and um, the lack of social distancing, and the fact that people inside were having to uh, clean, you know, but weren't, didn't have the proper PPE, um, mm-hmm. weren't necessarily being told to wear masks, or some people were not allowed to wear masks because mm-hmm. of their parole conditions. Um, and so uh, that, that, uh, so I definitely recommend. Um, uh, all of these films are available on WeAreDefender.com. dot mm-hmm. um, What's I mean, One Eleven Taylor has already had some impact. Um, there's a, there was a, another res, uh, There was another outbreak of COVID nineteen um, just this past January that mm-hmm. was exposed by a current resident. Um, that current resident um, or the resident at the time um, is Keith Malik Washington, who's the mm-hmm. uh, new editor in chief of the Bayview SF, Sf Bayview, Bayview. Yeah. National Black Newspaper. So he exposed a, a new outbreak, and he he's not our client, but, um, uh, you know, he talked to Tim Redman at 48 Hills, told him about this outbreak. Tim Redmond called the uh, 111 Taylor. They lied. They denied that there was an outbreak there. <sighs> then they had to eat their words after they showed them the document that had been posted in the center. Um, and then uh, Malik Washington's faced a lot of retaliation
3: from mm-hmm.
0: the uh, GEO Group and the Bureau, Federal Bureau of Prisons um, that he's now suing them um,
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, because of that retaliation. But our the, our film came out right when all of that was happening, so it helped to kind of bolster his case yes. um, and to show this this long ongoing pattern of uh, neglect um, against people who are who are, you know, among the most marginalized folks in our society. Yes. Um, and during the global pandemic, when everyone deserves to be safe. And um, our institutions—we've seen so many um, failings of various institutions throughout this pandemic. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, it was lending a, a glimpse into that, um, you know, against the the recklessness of the private prisons, prison prison uh, industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the interesting now tie-in, and I'm maybe going, you know, a little bit. Fast and deep here. No, there's a um, lot to, to get to. So
3: yeah, go for it.
0: The um, 111 Taylor, uh, the address right there is happens to be the site of the Compton Cafeteria riots. Mm-hmm. And so there's a movement from the transgender cultural district of San Francisco, which is the only cult transgender cultural district in the world that, mm-hmm. that so that we that I know of or that yeah. we know of, um, and. They are trying to reclaim spaces, and so, um, so that is another kind of piece of the puzzle or, or piece of the of the uh, of what we're building. Um, so now our office is involved in trying to bolster that effort. Um, unfortunately, Geo Group owns that building. Um, and <sighs> so it, it's, but you know, I mean, change doesn't. Sometimes change happens overnight, but sometimes we push for it, and yes, um, yes. and it comes later. You know, it took about eight years to shut down uh, the jail at 850 Bryant. Yes, so that happened. That's right. um, yes, yes. And we're going to close down Juvenile Hall at the end of this year, mm-hmm. so that's happening. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. It's a good reminder. Changes afoot. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up because I think sometimes it's easy to feel uh, like it's you know constantly uh, pushing a rock uphill. Like there's like if there's so much to undo, um, and at the same time it's important to remember the victories that have happened.
0: Right, right, and to and to keep looking at the horizon mm-hmm. um, for those for those spots of light, for those openings, for those opportunities. Um, it's it's stoked for us, um, you know, the need to really address um, what happens. I mean, we were already focused on this, but particularly now. Uh, focusing on what happens to people who are, when they're released from prison. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people still receive $200 in gate money, which is the same amount that they received like in the, you know, 30 years ago. Um, And, you know, if you've been in prison for any amount of time that uh, you know you might not have clothes that you're ready to mm-hmm. walk out the door in so right. you know you can buy your sweats and t shirt out with your gate money and by the time you're out the door, you know, you've got a hundred bucks. <laughs> what Doesn't are you go gonna do? Far. Right. You know, so um so it's a um it's it's a an area we're really looking at is what happens with, you know, people who actually are released um, mm-hmm. and go to you know, reentry places like like halfway houses, mm-hmm. um, but um, unfortunately, so many of them are now owned and operated by the private prison industry.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, but so you know, wanting to shift those kind of resources to community-based programs, who actually yes. have, you know, the incentive and and the and their compassion rooted in the community, right. um, and wanting to see what you know the People do their best, um, yes. but of course, in the private prison industry, it's their you know profits are the bottom line.
1: Right, right. Um. Yeah, it makes me think. i I write to a couple of folks who are incarcerated, and just hearing what was happening during the pandemic, and how so many folks got infected, and how so many people who are working there just did not, and this was in California, just did not care, and how heartbreaking that. Is. It's like already and to being also just to be cut off from visitors, from like family, and also just how expensive it is to either to email or to call or to buy uh, goods at the commissary, just like soap and just things that I think a lot of us take for granted. It's just, it's so heinous, honestly.
0: Yes, it, it is, and right now, actually, uh, this week and, and probably continuing on next week, um, there's a hearing in Marin County Superior Court um, mm. uh, against, there, there's a, it's three, over 300 petitioners from San Quentin, San Quentin.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: have filed for habeas uh, corpus, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, which is claiming Eighth Amendment uh, violations of cruel and unusual punishment, uh, deliberate indifference, on, be, on the uh, behalf of the state um, California Correct- Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and also San Quentin, um, because of the uh, heinous transfer of 121 people from um, one prison uh, in Chino, California, uh, mm-hmm. last May. So at the time, uh, that prison in Chino, California st- Institute for Men um, mm-hmm. was was the coronavirus hotspot in the mm-hmm. California state prison system. And then those 121 people were transferred to San Quentin, which until that time had zero known cases of coronavirus. Um, and uh, the people were not tested, you know, right before they were, they were brought. Um, and they were, you know, peddled together in small spaces on a bus for 11 hours. And then they weren't, um, you know, Quarantined or isolated when they arrived at San Quentin,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, and then we saw the worst uh, carceral outbreak uh, last summer, um, where uh, over like over two thousand people, I think it was twenty six hundred people,
3: mm.
0: at San Quentin had become infected, mm. and twenty eight died, and one staff member also died, and so that case is ongoing. Our office. Um, along with uh, a few other um, public defender offices and private defense offices are, um, are participating in this hearing and representing uh, over three, oh, these over 300 plaintiffs. Um, so if you wanted to follow what was going on there, um, mm-hmm. it's happening in Marin County Court. And uh, the link to watch is on the, the Zoom calendar them okay. um, on Marin County's court or you can look at our website on sfpublicdefender.org. Okay. And we have it, uh, the habeas page or you can find it on our media page.
1: Great. Thank you. Yeah, I'll be, um, we have a, a website now that uh, goes along with the, with the show. So I'll be providing the links uh, after the show goes on the air.
0: Excellent. I'm mm-hmm. so happy to hear that you're doing, that you're uh, doing the show. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like it's evolving as well.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so much. There's unlimited amounts of news and information that uh, people deserve to know. So happy to pr- provide, even if it's just a, a little bit at a time. Happy to get
0: it out there. Well, I, you you know, I appreciate that, and uh, I appreciate your you're always looking for stories uh, about justice. Um, Finding too many stories about injustice, but that's, yes, that's how, that's how we rattle the cage, Roman. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Oh, oh
0: my. And I miss your sigh. Cause the sigh oh. says a lot. <laughs> um, the sigh is a healthy thing. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things I was, I was explaining to someone about the, especially the Adachi project. And we have a couple other films that have come out too.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, one that just came out yesterday, um, which I can talk more about but yeah. you know the, the, the subject matter is heavy mm-hmm. if you're not you know it, it is heavy however the ultimate goal is to grow compassion right right and you know we I'll just kind of be blanket about it right society writes off often writes off people who are you know either in jail um in prison Coming out of jail, coming out of prison, have a criminal background, right? Those are the folks who get written off a lot of the time. Um, mm-hmm. I think just in in society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, what we're what we're doing with the Adachi Project is is bringing the work of public defense, which is getting in close, knowing who who these folks are, who our clients are, who their families are, what their community what communities they come from. Um, because we represent, those, you know, we represent the actual humans in the room who are going to be potentially suffering the most consequences from the actions of the system that continuously dehumanizes people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, by by looking at these kind of, we talk about the system as being, you know, this broken thing. Well, the system is doing as it was designed to do, mm-hmm. but when we Talk about the system, such as big, massive, cloudy idea. So with the Adachi Project, we want to look at these micro-realities. So yesterday, the film we released is called From Inside, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: and it's conversations with people in San Francisco County Jail. Again, incidentally, this all happened this year, but um, during the pandemic. So in those early days, the anxiety, the stress, the fear, the feeling dehumanized, the feeling oppressed, um, you know, these are the types of feelings that happen to people in jail, regardless of a pandemic. Yes. And then it's amplified by mm-hmm. this fear that they could potentially die. Right? right. That this being in jail, you know, whether you've, you you might be in jail because you couldn't afford bail at the time, mm-hmm. right? So this, like so many people. Right. Like hundreds of people <sighs> are in jail. Before they're even brought to trial. So, right. you know, we, we, we like to say innocent until proven guilty. But one of the things that the – uh, one of the people in the film says, you know, you're, you're guilty and then you have to prove that you're innocent,
3: mm-hmm. which is really
0: more along the lines of how the system tends to work. Yes. Um, you know, and, and so we wanted to, to bring that experience out. And there's – it is done like a film um, in the sense that there's artistic graphics that are kind of distorted, kind of disorienting, trying to bring that experience of, like, the racing mind that someone would have um, being, you know, locked in that position. Um, and then the, the third film that we that we did is, um, I think it's a little bit more, it, it's, it's, it's on a different tack than the other two, um, and it's called 44 Years Later.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And, Roman, were you still at Mutiny... When we were, were you we there, when we did that big um, and participated in the End Mass Incarceration Project? We had all the letters and art on the walls from people. Yes, here in prison. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And so around that time, there were also um, hunger strikes
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, in prisons, like at Pelican Bay. There was a big hunger mm-hmm. strike, and so that was several years ago now. But one mm-hmm. of one of the people who um, was kind of a leader in in the Pelican Bay hunger strike against mm-hmm. solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. His name is Paul Red. Mm-hmm. And Paul Red um, was convicted of a very serious crime at age nineteen. Um, he uh, there was it, his trial lasted three days from jury selection to verdict mm. and sentencing. Um, it was based on the sole. Um, Testimony of a co-defendant uh, who got a deal and ended up doing no jail time, mm. and so Paul Red was sentenced to prison. Um, he spent the next forty-four years in prison, um, thirty of which he spent at very at various intervals um, in solitary confinement. Mm. This this remarkable human um, did not have his spirit crushed he became a hospice worker he mm. became an anti-violence mentor um, and and facilitator um, he became you know loved by 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 so many folks um, and he was one of the uh, people who stood up and was part of the hunger strikes um, and name, it was part of the, the uh, landmark case that um, helped not end, but certainly revise the use of solitary confinement in California. Mm. Um, So um, there's basically anyone in prison who's not serving a life without possibility of parole, um, there's law in California that makes people eligible um, to have their sentence reviewed. Um, And so it used to be that the... uh, only the prisons could recommend folks um, for resentencing. Then a couple of years ago, California law changed and it also allowed district attorney offices to uh, uh, petition the court to, re- to hear, uh, you know, to determine whether someone should be resentenced. And so um, we do have a progressive uh, district attorney. Um, Thank goodness. What's that? Thank goodness. We d- we do right and and, and okay. there's a lot of these things that parts of the system that I've learned about just yeah. from being here for the past almost two years now. Wow, um, that that you know I would have <sighs> not understood prior, right? Um,
3: right.
0: And so, um, because we have a progressive district attorney and this law exists, we at the public defender's office are you know um, able to help people. File these petitions.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, complete their petitions to the district attorney. Yes. Right. Um, so that, um, in a very basic way, is kind of how Paul Red um, was able to have his uh, was able to have a resentencing hearing by the by the court, mm. um, and the, and then he was freed last May. Wow. So forty four years later is the film, and <sighs> um, and it is. His first day that he is free, and he, he his family has gathered. <sighs> um, his older brother, his little sister, <sighs> the the in laws, the nep- nephews, you know, who like know him but don't know him. Right, um, right. And so we were able to kind of capture oh. that first day, um, and I, I, I oh. it, yeah. I mean, it's it's really powerful stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, and I, I'm just so grateful for everyone who participates in it because mm-hmm. it is really, um, it, this is this is this work. I, I don't think, really think I have a, an adjective for it. Um, but all of these films are, are short, they're, you know, five, six, 11 minutes um, on wearedefender.com. Mm-hmm. So please check it out. There's, there's editorials that accompany each one of them as well, mm. um, folks from our office. Um, and Paul Red also um, co-authored um, or authored part of um, the 44 Years Later editorial as well. Um, so you know, we 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 want to we want to open people's eyes and hearts, and um, and try to push for changes in the system that are going to yes. be more humane and and more effective, right? Right. I mean, right. Mass incarceration hasn't made us any safer, so, um, but stup- it's destabilized oh. um, yes. millions of people across the country and millions right. of families across the country.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's the same conversation around with, you know, wanting to defund the police and like, why is all this money and the U.S. military? It's like all this money goes into just causing great harm around the world. It's, I mean, it's so backwards.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. We, when we know we can do things that are, you know, proactive, right. that's where we need to be investing um, our time and resources. Right. Yes. As opposed to being punitive, right, uh, right on the back end of things.
1: Yeah, if yeah, if funding all these institutions were to make us safer, we'd be the safest place in the world. So clearly, uh, it's not working. Right,
0: right. So, so that's a, that's a touch um, of what our 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 city, our our public defender's office, wow. um, what we're doing, um, looking out for a community. And uh, and and looking for you know for ways to improve public safety, mm-hmm. you know, um, and and that means giving people more support, right, yes. on the front end, on the mid end, on the back end, whatever it may be, right, right, right. support and 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 letting people, uh, giving people opportunities to thrive is what's going to keep them safe and what's yes. going to keep everybody else safe. Yes, absolutely. <sighs> That's. That's my report. Oh <laughs> mm, well, thank you so much, Don. Miss you. I miss seeing you at the station and miss hearing your voice. So it's good I'm, to see I miss connect. it too. i thank you so much. This is a, an absolute pleasure to join you this afternoon. Uh, um yeah, let's let's keep the connection strong. Indeed. And now that we're slowly coming out coming out of this pandemic a bit, mm-hmm. uh I'll I'll come back into the studio a little bit more and, and not be so afraid afraid of the microphones. Oh, sure. <laughs> That's all very
1: understandable. <laughs>
0: cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Roman.
1: All right. I'm gonna... All right. So big thank you to Vera for calling in and sharing so much information um, from the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. Learned quite a bit, and as mentioned, we also have a webpage where we will have uh, links to uh, many of the, uh, the, the films, the upcoming event, and much more information and articles as well. Uh, That'll be coming up on weeklyrev.org later today. So I'm going to take a bit of a music break. I'm going to sort out some articles to share um, coming up next. So uh, yeah, please do stay tuned and we'll be back in a bit.
4: song about my cat. Her name is Monica.
1: Again, this was the band that this is a band called the Linda Lindas and this is from a live performance at the LA public at L.A. Public Library I should say. And I'm gonna continue along. There's a lot of articles I wanted to share today so we'll see what we can get to. And again, big thanks to Val um, for uh, for calling in and having this uh, conversation uh, earlier this week. Uh, so informative. so thank you again. And uh, this next up comes, it's uh, similar to the conversation we're having about just where the funding goes in this country and how backwards it is. This is a statement from Code Pink, which is a great organization that folks can follow and support. Code Pink statement on the Biden administration's $753 billion proposed Pentagon budget for 2022. (sighs) I I don't know where that noise came from, but sometimes, uh, I I don't need, uh, uh, what a, What a dumb world we live in sometimes. Anyway, let's see what's going on here. And uh, we'll also post a link to this article on our website. May 28th, 2021, Code Pink, a women-led peace organization, calls on Congress to reject President Biden's record high full year uh, 2022. I'm assuming that's what FY stands for. FY 2022, military budget of $753 billion, a $11.3 billion increase over the Trump administration's previous spendthrift military budget, in supporting a minimum 10% reduction in Pentagon spending, Hood Pink noted the annual savings could eradicate hunger and homelessness each year in the United States. But why would we do that? Why would we, you know, want to ensure that everyone has housing and and food uh, if we can go bomb another country? God, so stupid. Okay. Anyway, Whew, gonna t- get myself together here. To the best of my ability to spend nearly a trillion dollars to prepare for war pulls back the curtain on the Biden administration's professed interest in lifting people out of poverty, says Carly Town, code pink co-director. While millions of Americans are steeped in debt, living paycheck to paycheck, facing eviction and struggling to pay medical bills amidst an ongoing health pandemic and recession the administration hurls taxpayer dollars at an increasingly privatized for-profit war industry. Biden's budget includes upwards of $30 billion for new nuclear weapons slated to cost $1.7 trillion over the next decades, billions for the F-35 fighter jet, a boondoggle with an eventual $1 to $2 trillion price tag, $17.4 billion for an unnecessary space force that's so Stupid! Oh, God, I'm gonna, I gonna—I don't want to yell on the mic. I don't want to hurt your ears. However, it's so fucking stupid. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And at least $51.5 billion annually to maintain over 800 overseas bases and establish new ones in the Indo-Pacific, where the Biden administration's pivot to Asia sets us on a reckless and dangerous course toward war with China. So fucking stupid. Ah. See, this is why I think I... I I uh, have to have uh, my own show here is that if I were to work for a a news agency, uh, <laughs> I would just have to swear too much and and call people uh, fucking war profiteers and warmongers and they can go fuck themselves. And I, you know, I mean, that's honestly what they are. Okay. President Biden's final Pentagon budget request uh, signals. Uh, alarming continuity with the Trump administration, which over the course of four years increased the Pentagon budget by $133 billion uh, with uh, bipartisan congressional approval. In light of the Biden administration's announcement that the United States will be withdrawing troops from Afghanistan by September, 2021, the Pentagon budget should reflect a corresponding 50, $50 billion reduction. Instead, Biden's proposed Pentagon budget of 753, uh, I'm guessing that, let's say let me make sure I'm using the right, uh, dollar amount, $753 billion would provide the department of defense. And again, as I mentioned all the time, it used to be called the department of war. And they're like, Oh, we need to sound nicer since we're out killing people. So let's, um, uh, let's call us the department of defense so we can defend ourselves against, uh, reality. And, um, Kindness, I guess. I don't know. Think of all other synonyms with good things and, uh, and, d- and defense, what defense could and should be. Okay, so with more money than the departments. Okay, so it's providing the Department of Defense with more money than the departments of state. Justice, Education, Transportation, Health and Human Services, and the EPA Environmental Protection Agency combined. (laughs) Oh, God. It's so stupid. So stupid. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I have to laugh because it's terrifying and awful. At the same time that Biden is set to withdraw U.S. troops from from Afghanistan, Biden and Congress are using China— as a justification for this massive Increase in military spending by framing China as a danger to the U.S. and its allies I think the U.S. is a is a Danger to itself and its allies But that's my opinion Biden's proposed Pentagon budget identifies China As a top challenge, that's in quotation marks And Secretary of Defense Austin Has stated China is our pacing th- Is our pacing threat What? It's so fucking st- Okay, I can't keep calling everything Fucking stupid because eventually that's, I'm going to have to rename the show that In reality, the inflated threat of China's military pales in comparison to the United States military. The U.S. has over 800 overseas military bases, hundreds of which surround the borders of China. China currently has only one official overseas military base uh, located in Djibouti. Djibouti. Uh, This same tactic of threat inflation led to the U.S.'s catastrophic invasion of Iraq in 2003. The consequences of that intervention were not only horrific overseas, but also proved deadly and harmful for Arab, Middle Eastern, Muslim, and Muslim-perceived communities, said Madison Tang, coordinator of Code Pink's China Is Not Our Enemy campaign. Today we are already seeing the consequences of this escalation of war with China in the form of xenophobic violence that targets Asians and Asian Americans of various ethnicities across the US. Anti-Asian violence has increased 194% in the first quarter of 2021 compared to 2020, according to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism. This pattern of heightened xenophobia and scapegoating for a minority group as a corollary to u.s imperialist wars is not new and must be challenged this push for rearmament including hundreds of new land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles and submarine mounted tactical nuclear weapons comes amid concern the biden administration's heated anti-china rhetoric and policies could plunge us into a nuclear war said marcy winograd coordinator of code pink congress a campaign to mobilize Co sponsors for progressive foreign policy legislation. There is no law of gravity, however, that compels President Biden. Uh, excuse me, um, but I would say that me burping on air is far less offensive than these fuckers trying to uh, raise the budget of the Pentagon. Okay, and uh, that's my excuse. Okay. Uh, there is no law of gravity, however, that compels President Biden or Congress to continue funding the drive for nuclear rearmament or global omnicide oh i haven't seen that word before omnicide wow at the end of the day the federal budget is up to congress to decide not the president we call on congress to reduce the pentagon budget by at least 10 percent and instead invest in what will truly make us safe universal health care good jobs and addressing the climate crisis shouldn't be that difficult but here we are act now it's now more important than ever to contact your representatives and they provide a link and send them the code pink guide to Pentagon budget cuts to demand that they show their support to reduce the Pentagon's budget, the Pentagon budget, and invest in human needs. And they also have additional quotes and reaction on Biden's proposed Pentagon budget from the international community. The way the U.S. budget overemphasizes the military hurts the American people and the world. A tiny fraction of the money that President Biden is proposing for the military budget would save the lives of millions of children in Yemen. Wouldn't that be a better investment in the future than more bombs, warships, and nuclear weapons? That's from Aisha Juman, president of Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. This enormous Pentagon budget will only lead to more military conflicts, more bloodshed, more grief. We saw enough of that in Afghanistan for the last 20 years. It's time to invest in peace. And that's from Basir Bita, local activist in Kabul, Afghanistan. (sighs) There are many places where the U.S. could and should spend money, spend more money. At least it can start by paying for some of the huge damages it has caused to the people in this country and abroad in the last several centuries. Increasing the military budget, however, only makes everything worse. And that's Dr. Zhu, professor of economics at John Jay College, uh, CUNY, former professor of economics at Renmin University of China, and Chinese Citizen. An increase in the U.S. defense budget will mean the deployment and/or testing of U.S. weapons in South Korea, which endangers the lives of residents near U.S. bases. U.S. military buildup has led to a perpetual arms race, including nuclear weapons and nuclear threats in Northeast Asia. The deployment of the U.S. THAAD, T-H-A-A-D, missile defense system in South Korea in 2017 has raised tension in the region and is opposed by many South Koreans. Villagers near the new THAAD base have been protesting every day against the illegal deployment. I join in the call to the Biden administration to reduce the U.S. defense budget and invest in human security withdraw attention raising weapons systems from korea and end the more than 70 year old korean war with a peace agreement that's from yu kyung ko a consultant for women's international league for peace and freedom the wilpf and women-led korea peace now campaign and a standing committee member of the korea peace appeal campaign next the u.s military excuse me I almost called it the U.S. military states, and we kind of are. The United States military continues to negatively impact the lives of people who have never consented to the U.S. military presence, particularly in island nations in the Asia-Pacific region, such as Hawaii, Okinawa, and the Marianas. The military presence places the people of these nations in mortal danger of annihilation, as was demonstrated in 2018 via the false ballistic missile alert in Hawaii, proving that the U.S. military is incapable of protecting us. Furthermore, the military creates a burden in numerous other ways, such as through crime, pollution, and economic deprivation. And that is from Robert Kajiwara, founder of the Peace for Okinawa Coalition. Next, we members of the International Women's Network Against Militarism unequivocally oppose the proposed Biden Pentagon budget spending nearly 50% of the U.S. discretionary budget, more than the next 10 countries combined, demonstrates the destructive priorities of a society committed more to world military domination than care of its people and the natural environment. Increased militarization in the U.S. and abroad will only create more insecurities, fear, and destruction, both at home and abroad, especially in places of massive U.S. military presence such as Okinawa and Guam. We urge the Biden-Harris administration to withdraw the current proposal and formulate one that will ensure full health care, quality education, and environmental protection, and that is from the International Women's Network Against Militarism. So, again, um, we'll be posting this article on our webpage at weeklyrev.org, and in the article, uh, there are links you can click on to uh, contact your representatives and send them the Code Pink Guide to Pentagon Budget Cuts. So, I know this is like... Wow, this is, there's a lot here, and also they provide action items that folks can take to, to speak up and to contact representatives. And also, as a reminder, in this article it was mentioned how bad the, the military is for the environment, and it's, the US military is actually the number one uh, cause and harm for, for the environment. So it's, it's, really, it's, just, it's bad for everybody, for people, for animals, for nature, for the world. So it's silly that we have to keep on talking about this and yet here we are. So I'll be providing a link to this article on our webpage. I'm going to rest uh, my voice just a bit. We do have a lot more to get to though. And oh my gosh, so much more to get to, but I did want to play a little bit more music and uh, coming up, I also wanted just to share another upcoming event. And this is happening on Thursday, June 3rd from noon to 3 PM Pacific time. This is an event uh, we take care of us a deep dive into the movement to decriminalize mental health and skin color and this is from uh, kpfa and the anti-terror police project now let's read a little bit about this here and then take a break Uh, join us on june 3rd for our first virtual regional summit we take care of us a deep dive into the movement to decriminalize mental health and skin color we'll spend an inspiring afternoon learning about how to build replicable and sustainable alternatives to police and prisons for mental health, and how we as a community can take care of each other in moments of crisis. So this was shared by the AP- APTB. You can follow them on Twitter at APTPAction. Action. It's also on the KPFA website, and we'll provide a link to this as well on our site at weeklyrev.org. All right. I'm going to uh, play some more Linda Lindas for you all. Um, also, in the video, which we will also post a link to, um, they have an interview. So that's after the the last song that we played. So I'm going to jump to their next song, which is called "No Clue," and then uh, after a couple songs, we'll be back with some more news articles and information for you all. So please do stay tuned.
3: Oh, Clay.
4: to lock down, a, a boy in my class, class came, came up, up to me and, and said that his, his dad, dad told him, him to stay away from Chinese people. After, After I told him, him that I was Chinese, he backed away. Them. Eloise, Eloise and I wrote the, I the song based on that experience. This is about him and all the other racist sexist boys in this world.
3: One, two, three, four.
4: go oh.
1: was the linda lindas with racist sexist boy and before that no clue and again this is from a performance la public library and we'll share a link to the video on our website okay much more to get to uh this is from a, a news source i hadn't seen before it's tribune of the people which is a revolutionary news service and you can find it at tribune and this is an article from May 23rd, 2021, rallies, marches in solidarity with heroic Palestinian resistance across the U.S. And I think it's important to share this because a lot of these stories don't make it to mainstream and corporate media. So wanting wanted to share this as well. All right. This is by Dimitri Sanz. Uh, hundreds booed US President Joe Biden when he visited Dearborn, Michigan as part of a mass worldwide protest as part of mass worldwide protests this week in solidarity with the Palestinian people and against US imperialism for its role in Israel's crimes. Thousands more mobilized in US cities to celebrate Palestinian resistance and to condemn the Israeli murder of over 200 Palestinians, including dozens of children. Despite the ceasefire agreement between Hamas and the Israeli government, protests continued through this weekend and more are scheduled in the days to come. Uh, some of, excuse me,
3: <coughs>
1: some of the largest rallies and marches took place on Saturday, May fifteenth, the seventy-third anniversary of the Nakba, the catastrophe which marks the date when the displacement of Palestinians began, in full as the Zionist state of Israel accelerated its campaign of genocide upon its formation. Many of these solitary events saw protesters of all ages and various backgrounds demonstrating uh the broad support for the palestinian cause within the u.s people in the u.s have loudly echoed the call of the people worldwide standing with palestinians in militant resistance to zionist colonialism and u.s imperialism in los angeles thousands marched through the streets on saturday at one point blocking traffic on freeway 405. the police response one attendee told tribune was comparable to that of the may uprisings last year with officers deploying riot gear sound cannons, and almost running numerous protesters over with vehicles. Later in the week, hundreds of protests at the Israeli consulate in West Los Angeles, chanting, free, free Palestine. In Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, hundreds protested at Israel's U.S. embassy. In Boston last weekend, protesters disrupted traffic, marching to the area's Israeli consulate, where they unfurled a large banner that read, free Palestine. Other large protests took place in New York, Philadelphia, Sacramento, New Orleans, Houston, and more. Uh, New York saw clashes between Palestinian solidarity protesters and supporters of Zionism. In one incident, a supporter of Israel chased after a young child who snatched the Israeli flag out of his hands, but the man was beaten back by Palestine supporters who defended the child. New York police targeted the pro-Palestine demonstrators for arrest rather than the pro-Israel demonstrator. When faced with state troopers at the Texas state capitol, hundreds of protesters in Austin chanted, there is only one solution: ooh, uh, inf- intifada revolution. The rally, which began on the sidewalk, was too large to be contained and spilled un- into the streets, turning into an unpermitted march through downtown Austin. One Austin protester held a portrait of Palestinian political prisoner George Abdallah. Speakers called for overthrowing U.S. imperialism and uniting all resistance struggles with the cl- with the class struggle. I think this time, as hard as it seems for people in Gaza and Jerusalem, is really promising, said an attendee of the Austin rally who grew up in Gaza. If all Palestinians unite and fight together, then we will finally be on the right track. It is always right for us to be in resistance. And they have a video as well. Uh, In Charlotte, at a rally of a few hundred people, one speaker called for solidarity between the Movement for Black Lives in the U.S. and the Palestinian Rebellion. Thousands demonstrated in San Francisco in front of the Israeli consulate at a pro-Palestine protest in Fresno. Zionist counter-protesters were ran out and Israeli flags were burned. On the Kansas City sister city's international bridge, lined with flags from countries around the world, protesters tore down an Israeli flag and replaced it with a Palestinian flag to the cheers of the crowd. Uh, other protests were held in Pittsburgh and Orlando. In Pittsburgh, the protest initiated at East Liberty Presbyterian Church and marched towards the Carnegie Mellon University, where protesters condemned the university's collaboration with the Israeli Defense Forces. On Saturday, there were demonstrations in Portland, Tulsa, and other cities, with more solidarity demonstrations expected in the coming days. And there's a lot more photos in this article as well. Wow. Whew. Okay. Going to take a deep breath here. That's a lot. I'm just wanting to share what was happening, what's been happening around the country. Oh, goodness. And also on the episode of the show, I believe last week or the week before, we also shared some events and ways uh, in which uh, Jewish communities in the U.S. were showing solidarity with Palestinians and there's a couple of orgs that folks can donate to and also support. Um, so I wanted to, to share that as well. And yes, there are Jewish-led actions against apartheid, and as well as a debrief and open organizing call that happened. So I wanted to share those links. And this is from uh, ifnotnowmovement.org. That you can find as well as Jewish Voice for Peace. Whew, deep breath. Speaking of colonialism, I wanted to share, this is a brief abstract, sometimes we go kind of, everything's connected, definitely believe that, and also wanted to share just a bit of history as well, because that's very informative to what's going on right now, and this is from a magazine called uh, Science Advances, which I don't believe I've necessarily read from before, but did want to share at least the abstract of this article that came out on May 19th of this year large-scale reptile extinctions following European colonization of the Guadalupe Islands. Guadalupe Islands. And this is uh, from Corentin Ocheton, Emmanuel Paradis, Salvador Bailon, Sandrine uh Ivan Eynik, and uh, Anud Lenobe. And many more authors. Okay. Uh, Lenoble, uh, Olivier Lorvillec, and Tresset and Nicole Woven, and hope I'm uh, sharing speaking the names correctly. And the abstract from this article: Large-scale extinction is one of the defining challenges of our time, as human processes fundamentally and irreversibly reshape global ecosystems. While the extinction of large animals with popular appeal garners widespread public and research uh, research interest. The importance of smaller, less charismatic species to ecosystem health is increasingly recognized. Benefiting from a uh, systematically collected fossil and archaeological archives, we examined snake and lizard extinctions in the Guadalupe Islands of the Caribbean study... Of the Caribbean... Oh, excuse me. Uh, I get to that point <laughs> after an hour where sometimes the words run into each other, so I'm going to take my time here. A study of about... 43,000 bone remains across six islands revealed a massive extinction of 50 to 70% of Guadalupe's snakes and lizards following European colonization. In contrast, earlier indigenous populations coexisted with snakes and lizards for thousands of years without affecting their diversity. Study of archaeological remains provides insights into the causes of snake and lizard extinctions and shows that failure to consider fossil-derived data probably contributes to substantial underestimation of human impacts to global biodiversity. Wow. And then there's a whole article here um, with a lot more information. So if you're interested in reading more, you can go to the Science Advances website. And again, we will post a link on our website. Wow. That's a lot. I'm going to take a a breath for a moment. Um, And I wanted to share a video, or the audio from a video, certainly. It's from the Gravel Institute. I recommend following them on Twitter. You can follow them at Gravel Institute. Also, I'm on Twitter. And I do a lot of uh, shared tweets on there. So feel free to follow me on there as well. R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. So... This is a video called um, is, uh, excuse me, "Is Uber Scamming You?" I think a lot of us know the answer to that. Personally, I think I've maybe written in one Uber in my or two my entire life, and that's when someone else has ordered them. And it's just a shame because I'm all about, uh, you know, public transportation, uh, accessible transportation, and walking and biking. And oh, uh, it's just, uh, yeah, it's a lot. Okay, so I'm going to play the audio from this video. I'll leave my mic on in case I need to describe any of the visual images. Hopefully, it should be included here in uh, in the audio.
2: Among the pantheon of corporations that have emerged out of Silicon Valley, Uber occupies a special place. The company is worth $100 billion. Hundreds of billions of dollars worth of trips and delivery orders have been booked using its app.
1: And I want to share the uh, speaker's name. And this is Edward Ungueso Jr., who's a staff writer at Vice.
2: Trips and delivery orders have been booked using its app. It gets tens of billions of dollars in revenue each year. Uber is everywhere. And the narrative of Uber is also everywhere. It says that Uber is innovative that it can disrupt the taxi industry and make money doing it, and that it can offer flexibility and opportunity to its army of drivers. Everybody wins. There's one problem. None of that is true. Let's start with one basic fact. For a company so prominent, there's something very strange. Uber has never, not once, turned a single profit. You might be confused. How can it be that such a large company with such a popular service has simply never made money? When you find out the answer, you discover something important. You discover that Uber is fundamentally a scam, a company that exists to scam its investors, its users, and most importantly, to scam its workers. Despite everything you might hear, Uber's not a technology company. While the company may brag about its sophisticated algorithm, in reality, Uber is just another taxi company. There's nothing fundamentally more efficient about Uber than there was with your local taxi service. The business is the same. There's no real way to innovate someone driving someone or something from point A to point B. Using an app to match riders with drivers is so simple that local taxi companies do the same thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, Uber is less efficient than taxi companies. Most normal taxi companies don't spend huge amounts on marketing or lobbying or corporate headquarters. They don't pay their CEO $45 million a year. Uber has higher costs than traditional taxi operators in every category except fuel. So why is Uber everywhere while taxi companies go out of business? It all goes back to Uber's master plan. First, with massive amounts of money from venture capitalists, Uber subsidized significantly cheaper rides than what taxi companies could offer to attract customers away from them. Then. After years of undercutting competitors and driving them to bankruptcy, resulting in a wave of suicides by cab drivers, Uber established near monopolies in local markets. Now, Uber is often the default way to get around if you don't have a car. And once Uber has eradicated its competition, it can make itself profitable at expense of users and drivers, raising its fares to what taxis offered or higher while pushing down drivers' wages. The plan is not efficiency. It's monopoly. And that's not just me theorizing. A 73-page article in the Transportation Law Journal took a deep look at Uber's business and concluded one thing. Uber has no ability, now or in the foreseeable future, to earn sustainable profits in a competitive marketplace. Uber's investors cannot earn returns on the money they invest without achieving levels of market dominance that would allow them to exploit anti-competitive market power. So that is Uber's grand plan. It is not increasing the productivity or efficiency of the industry that it's in. It's subsidizing its rides with venture capital cash until it can build a monopoly and do whatever it wants. So, users who buy Uber's narrative may be getting scammed, but no one is getting it worse than Uber's workers. So, Uber relies on classifying drivers as independent contractors. In the United States, That means an individual provides services to a company, but is independent of the company and its control. Uber says that because drivers can choose what work to accept and for how long, they're fully independent. Now, most of Uber's workers drive part-time, but they actually do relatively little driving, and 90% of them quit each year. The majority of Uber's labor is done by a smaller group of workers who drive full-time for the company. So who are these drivers? In cities like New York, the vast majority are immigrants from places like India, Bangladesh, and Haiti. They desperately need cash to support their families and send remittances back home. These are people at the very margins of our society. And how does Uber treat them? Uber treats them like a pool of cheap labor, easy to exploit and then discard. Uber's always been clear about one thing. It does not care about its drivers. At Uber's Greenlight Centers, where drivers register with the company They were not even allowed to enter bathrooms reserved for employees. In fact, when Uber was talking about how it would become profitable, it stated clearly that it wanted to get rid of its drivers and transition entirely to self-driving cars. But Uber's technology was so bad that after burning billions of dollars, it had to give up. So for now, Uber is stuck with its drivers. And in order to appear like it's coming closer to profitability, it's been cutting their wages since 2015. Whenever Uber increases its cut from each trip or reduces the minimum rate for drivers, its margins improve by that much immediately. As a result, Uber drivers regularly earn less than the minimum wage. After taking hidden costs like fuel into account, the average Uber driver earns a little over $9 an hour, about 50% less than what taxi drivers made before Uber. In fact, half of Uber drivers live at or below the poverty level. 20% of them have to use food stamps to survive. Unable to afford a home, some drivers even sleep in their cars. Drivers, with nothing to their name, get trapped in predatory car rental schemes, promoted by Uber. They garnish your wages until you've paid it off with interest. One study from Georgetown found that a third of drivers reported falling into a debt trap. Some ended up earning less than $5 an hour. And because its drivers are technically independent contractors, Uber can avoid pesky requirements like minimum wages, health insurance, or paid sick leave. Drivers can't unionize to bargain for better conditions. Uber has all the power to make sure it can stay that way. When California tried to classify drivers as employees, Uber spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a campaign to overturn it with a ballot proposition written by Uber's lawyers. And even though Uber talks about flexibility, that's not what drivers actually experience. Drivers may not have physical bosses to order them around, but they're ruled by something even worse, an algorithmic overseer that's more intrusive than any flesh and blood boss could ever be. Uber's only actual innovations are in surveilling and disciplining its workforce. They're always watching, monitoring driving behavior, calculating fraud profiles, using invisible secret functions to discipline drivers as well as customers. Fall below an arbitrary threshold for ratings? fired reject too many trips because you don't want to lose any money fired did a customer make a false report fired so that's the freedom that uber offers it frees drivers to make below minimum wage to sleep in their cars to beg for five-star ratings and work themselves to the bone but at the end of the day uber like other gig companies is an innovator not in technology but in exploitation It's leading the war against labor in ways other companies never thought possible. It oversees a pool of atomized, ultra-exploited laborers, writes its own regulations, and has done it all without earning a single cent of profit. Imagine what sort of world they'll need to start making one. I'm Edward Anguesso, Jr., staff writer at Vice for the Gravel Institute.
1: Oof. A lot of information there. And we'll be posting a link to this uh, on our website. Wow! All right, so it's just about almost 1:30 here. Did want to get to a few more pieces of information, and again, just a drop in the bucket of what's out there. And this is from uh, Bay- attention Bay Area, San Francisco. Follow AROC Bay Area, and you can follow them at AROC Bay Area and their BlockTheBoat.org mobilization against uh, Israel Apartheid State. Text your name to 181-BLOCK-ZIM, and that's 1812-562-5946 for updates and calls to action. Call 415-861-7444 to get in touch and stand for Free Palestine. And so more information there. And again, we'll post a link on our website. Also, there have been quite a few anti-trans bills that some folks have been trying to pass across the country and wanted to share some clarifying information from uh, Chase Strangio, who is a lawyer and also shares a lot of information about this um, on a regular basis. So following Chase on Twitter is a great idea. If you would like to learn more, And Chase's uh, Twitter address handle is at Chase Strangio, and that's uh, C-H-A-S-E-S-T-R-A-N-G-I-O. And Chase writes, this is on May 22nd, I am seeing everywhere posts and headlines about Tennessee banning healthcare for trans youth. That is wrong. Please be careful with the info you are spreading in this very precarious time. Here is what happened. Tennessee passed many laws targeting trans youth, including a ban on sports, a ban on restroom use, a mandate that businesses post signs if they allow trans people to use the restroom, and a law that unnecessarily codifies the standards of care for treating trans young people. But all the healthcare law does is say you cannot treat pu- prepubertal young people with hormones to treat gender dysphoria. No, that is zero kids receive hormones pre puberty for gender dysphoria already. So the law does nothing to disrupt the existing care. It sends a message of disapproval, it scares kids and their families, but the only medical treatment provided for gender dysphoria is is initiated at puberty, not before. So the law does not disrupt the care. The fact that people are saying the care is banned is terrifying people. Young people across the country are fearing for their well-being, and we have to be discerning about what we share because people's lives and bodies are in deeply precarious positions. Arkansas has cut off care for trans youth, but Tennessee did not. To all the media outlets writing these headlines for clicks, please stop, you are doing a terrible thing making people scared, and spreading misinformation. All right. Take a deep breath. It's about one thirty. I did want to get to at least a couple more uh, news articles here. I'm going to take a deep breath because it's a lot, and I don't mean to just keep on, A, running through all these because and without the time to just – Take a breath and let them sit. Um, And also, there's, I recognize so much more that's happening. So, again, here for a few hours a week and uh, get to what we can, show the connections between everything, including people in positions of power who cause great harm to the rest of us and how we can push back against that. (sighs) Okay, deep breath. Um, Also, there's a Red. let's see i think i think yeah the last thing i'm going to get to before we play some music and and uh end up and uh, because it's just wow it's been a lot it's been a lot so this is from uh robert g reeve who is a privacy tech worker so i think the fact that so many of us use technology and uh as the uber video mentioned just or the anti-uber video mentioned uh just Uh, It's important just to understand what these tech companies are up to. So I wanted to share this thread that was on Twitter. Uh, And Robert writes, um, and you can also follow Robert on Twitter, at Robert G. Reeve, I'm back from a week at my mom's house and now I'm getting ads for her toothpaste brand, the brand I've been putting in my mouth for a week. We never talked about this brand or Googled it or anything like that. As a privacy tech worker, let me explain why this is happening. First of all, your social media apps are not listening to you. This is a conspiracy theory. It's been debunked over and over again. But frankly, they don't need to because everything else you give them unthinkingly is way cheaper and more powerful. Way more powerful. Your apps collect a ton of data from your phone, your unique device ID, your location, your demographics. We know this. That's, we know this. Okay. Data data aggregators pay to pull in data from everywhere when I use my discount card at the grocery store, every purchase, that's a data set for sale. They match uh, this person, Robert's uh, Harris Teeter purchases to his Twitter account um, because uh, he says, I gave both those companies my email address and phone number and I agreed to all that data sharing when I accepted those terms of service and the privacy policy. Here's where it gets truly nuts though. Uh, and This is written in first person from Robert. Uh, Robert says, if my phone is regularly in the same GPS location as another phone, they take note of that. They start reconstructing the web of people I'm in regular contact with. The advertisers can cross-reference my interests and browsing history and purchase history to those around me. It starts showing me different ads based on the people around me, family, friends, co-workers. It will serve me ads for things I don't want, but it knows someone I'm in regular contact with might want to subliminally get me to start a conversation about, I don't know, fucking toothpaste. It never needed to listen to me for this. It's just comparing aggregated metadata. The other thing is this is just out there in the open. Tons of people report on this. It's just nobody cares. We have decided our privacy just isn't worth it. It's a losing battle. We've already given away too much of ourselves and then post an article from it. Is Facebook spying on you? And then quotes uh, from an article, we spotted a senior official at the Department of Defense walking through the Women's March. His wife was also on the mall that day, something we discovered after tracking him to his home in Virginia. And That's an article from the New York Times. 12 uh, million phones, one data set, zero privacy. And then the next, uh, next piece is, uh, so they know my mom's toothpaste, they know I was at my mom's, they know my Twitter. Now I get Twitter ads for my mom's toothpaste. Your data isn't just about you. It's about how it can be used against every person you know and people you don't to shape behavior unconsciously. Apple's latest updates let you block apps tracking and Facebook is mad. They're begging you to just press accept and go back to business as usual. Block the fuck out of every app's ads. It's not just about you. Your data reshapes the internet. And there's a link to an article from Vox.com why Facebook and Apple are fighting over your privacy. The internet is never going to be the wacky place it was when I had a live journal and people shared protein gifts in the form of YTMNDs. Big business has come to suck the joy and your dollars out of it. At least make it hard for them. Oh, and this is uh, Robert's uh, Twitter high score. If you like D&D, okay. So that's uh, just a link to more of Robert's info. So yeah, yikes, there's a lot there for sure, and we'll post a link. I, I try to end the show usually on some optimism, but wow, it's hard. It's hard to. Yikes. Um, but I think uh, check out our website, weeklyrev.org. Lots of upcoming events and ways to take action, because yeah, things are terrifying and also so many ways that folks can show up. So, I'm going to play some Linda Lindas, and I think that's going to be it for us today. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. I did a lot of talking. Wow. All right. Uh, Thanks again to Val for for having the time to to chat. And uh, we'll be back next week and end up the show with a couple of uh, Linda Linda songs. And these are some covers. Uh, Have a great week, everyone. Oh, I should, you know, hi, uh, promote the Patreon. There are some shows, some podcasts out there that have, uh, you know, engineers and producers and advertisers. And this is a very much uh, DIY project here. I've been doing it now for almost eight years. So, if you were touched or you learned anything on the show today and or <laughs> like the music, anything at all, I'm going to support the show. Please, you know, spread the word. This is available on multiple streaming uh, uh, mediums. <laughs> we're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Um, also on FM Player. Many other apps out there. Mutiny Radio has, a, has an app of its own. And also, there's plenty of other great shows here on Mutant Your Radio, so please do check out the website. And if you'd like to donate to the show, that would be super helpful. We have a Patreon up. You can find it at our page at weeklyrev.org or go to patreon.com forward slash weeklyrev. And big thanks to all the folks who chip in on a monthly basis. Uh, it, makes, uh, it makes it so much easier to be able to come in here and share these this news with you all. So thanks again, and we'll be back next week. Whew. Another deep breath. Uh, have a great week, everyone.
4: So these, so these next, next two, two songs, songs um, we, we performed, performed in the, the movie Moxie, Moxie, which is did based base off, off of, of a, a book, book too, too, so, so check, check it, out.
3: it out. One, two, three, four. <laughs>
4: And I won't protect you now I'm gonna get you out of my way Into another house I ever tried to you I will never know And it will seems so long ago What you say We'll come back to you What you say We'll come back to you What you say We'll come back to you, what you, say, we'll come back to you. Now, I believe you And I thought I didn't you De ver o
5: Bob, you ever wanna be funny? Well my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well I mean you ever wanna be like in front of an audience? Like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Well oh, shit. From time to time I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two people's paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! 499.
4: Let's watch a whole movie on
6: YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of. Uh, with with Michael Michael Man. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L.W.A.F.L.M.O.Y.T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L.W.A.F.L.M.O.Y.T. And, yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L.W.A.F.L.M.O.Y.T. That's every Sunday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time or if you're Carl 5%. 5 yeah, percent, easy right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, uh, uh, let's watch, watch full length. length. Okay, well, let's do a full minute promo. Oh, never I mind. Bye. See, See you next time. I was well, just really cool,
5: leaving the theater. 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. Oh, and I drove it up there. And I
4: started to do some thinking.
5: ...around dinner on the freeway I'm having okay. a really, really good time. Flat black classic. Just big splits and cruising. Saturday, 92. On the freeway. Good to
4: I am I a terrible friendly and fraud um, Lori Stenner's voice is absolutely right. I am
5: Teddy Biles,
4: and adolescent. And I will cut the
5: that room. Henry. Henry? Yeah? Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your Chief Nurse Major and uh, She makes some accusations, Henry, I-I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man.
1: Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey everybody, listen to the weekly review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the weekly review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m.
6: Oh, my turn-offs are guys who say mutant. Man.
4: Mutin' Man?
6: Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Oh, Mike
5: Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Hey! Mike Spiegelman. Uh, Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman! Mike Spiegelman! Spiegelman!
6: Oh, L. W-W-W-A-A-A-F-F-F-L-L. Almost there. MMM. Oh, 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 welcome to Let's Watch a Full Length Movie on YouTube. Mike Spiegel and Carl. Hi, Carl. Hey, Mike. We can YouTube if you want to.
2: We can leave our
6: friends behind. Yeah. My and my boyfriend. friend's you. My friend's you, Mike. I'm going to leave <laughs> yeah. you behind. Phew! Phew! <laughs> I love them without hats. Uh, welcome to the show. We are going to watch a full-length movie on YouTube. Would you let us do it? Uh, you can follow us on our podcast, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. Always bring that up up front. Yeah. I'd love to say that we are streaming right now on TVRadio.FM. You first. On Sundays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You radio.fm. Such a
3: powerful service. Listen.
5: Stay at home And it's just fine This heart's on fire This heart's on fire This heart's on fire This heart's on fire अब वो